Hello, Per Podcasters. This is Dr. Jolla Kerpenstein, and I have some exciting news for you. So, after we released our third podcast, I'm, I'm so proud to tell you that we have had more than a thousand downloads and we had lots of great reviews. So, both Susan and I thank you from the bottom of our hearts for being so enthusiastic about this podcast. It's a lot of fun to make. And uh, Susan and I will be going strong. And uh, I'm even more excited this time because this is podcast number four, per podcast number four, or the percast number four. And we have a very, very special guest, and that's Dr. Sarah Boston. Sarah is a veneer surgical oncologist, and she is a best-selling author. Uh, of a book called Lucky Dog, How Being a Venerian Saved My Life. Um, she's also a cancer survivor and her first book, Lucky Dog, uh, was published uh, last year and uh, made uh, the bestseller list for Canadian nonfiction. So that's amazing. She graduated uh, with her DVM from Western College of Veterinary Medicine, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, uh, in Canada. And then she did a rotating internship at the University of Guelph. She then returned to Western Canada for three years of general practice uh, to do a residency at the University of Guelph uh, in small animal surgery. She became a board certified uh, American College of Veterinary Surgeons surgeon. And then she did a postdoctoral fellowship in surgical oncology in 2005 with Steve Withrow. Uh, Sarah uh, was at the faculty of the University of Guelph, then she was at the faculty of uh, the University of Florida, and now she works in private practice uh, near Toronto. I am so happy to have Sarah doing the first interview podcast that we will have, and we're going to talk about a very, very important topic, and that's uh, injection site sarcomas. So enjoy the podcast. Thank you. Dr. Yola Kerpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Yola Kerpenstein, and I'm together with... Dr. Susan Little. Hi, Susan. How are you doing? I'm good, Yola. How are you? Where are you in this world? I am actually in Ottawa. I'm actually home, but just for one night, because it, this is good timing, because I have to leave tomorrow, so... Wow, that doesn't happen very often yeah. that we're both at home because I'm in beautiful Kansas, in Lawrence, Kansas, yeah. and I'm leaving tomorrow too, but I'm not going as far. Oh. So, no. Um, 
But uh, mm. very excited. This is podcast number four, the per podcast number four. And we have a very special guest. And as a matter of fact, I'm so excited because this is the first podcast that we invite a guest. And that person is from Canada. Yay! So, uh, yeah, so we have Dr. Sarah Boston on the phone. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's so fantastic that, that you're on with us. And we have a special topic because I think we're going to talk about something that happens in cats not that often, but if it happens, it is pretty bad. And so, Sarah, let's start with you a little bit. Can you give a little bit of background, who you are, what you do, and, and what your clock teaches? Sure. Um, so my name is Sarah Boston, and I am a veterinary surgical oncologist, and I currently practice just outside of Toronto, um, with VCA Canada um, at a practice called 404 Veterinary Emergency and Referral. And um, I do only cancer surgery for dogs and cats. And Sarah is an amazing surgeon. So I know her for quite a long time already. Um, we're both part of the VSSO, the Veterinary Society of Surgical Oncology. And we might be able to talk about that a little bit too uh, uh, during the podcast. But uh, So uh, like-minded people. And uh, so that means that, uh, Susan... This podcast will be mm-hmm. about surgery. Well, I know, but, you know, I, I'm okay with that because we have picked a topic where really we only have two big things to talk about. One is how do you how you prevent this, and the other is treatment, and treatment is surgery, right? So so I'm okay, I'm okay with that, and I'm really happy that Sarah um, is, uh, is with us for this topic um, today because it is an important topic. It's not the most common disease that we see in cats, but it's pretty important. It is, it is. And Sarah wrote a blog about it, and that's how it all started, I think, uh, the idea to invite her for this podcast. And uh, we are going to call this podcast first about this. And what is this, Sarah? So feline injection site sarcoma, which has also been called vaccine-associated sarcoma. Um, And essentially it is a very aggressive cancer, um, very locally aggressive. It can also metastasize. Um, and it is caused by uh, inflammation. And so it happens most commonly with vaccines. Um, it has been reported with other types of injections, but most commonly with vaccines. And a little more commonly with the vaccines that cause inflammation as part of eliciting the immune response. Um, so those are called adjuvanted vaccines. Um, it's a fairly controversial topic, but I think because it's such an awful disease. But uh, I named my blog, We Need to Talk About Feline Injection Site Sarcomas, and I'm really excited to be here talking about this with you both because we do need to talk about it, and we need to have our feline practitioners and our cancer surgeons and our general practitioners and industry working together, and I feel like we're not talking and we're not doing that. So I'm hoping we can start a conversation. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that, Sarah, because this really first hit the radar back in the mid, like early to mid 1990s. And here we are, what, you know, 25 years later, 30 years later, and we still need to talk about it. Yeah, that's amazing to me as well because I graduated in 1996, and I did spend three years in general practice, and I was vaccinating low on a limb and over a limb, and um, a lot of my clients thought it was nuts because that's something they hadn't seen before at that time because it was, you know, 1996, 1997. but we still see 
injection site sarcomas uh, between the shoulder blades, which is a, you know, kind of old school place to vaccinate. Um, we've also seen a shift in the location of the injection site sarcomas. So the vaccine task force has recommended vaccinating over a limb. I think that message has gotten through. I think what hasn't necessarily gotten through and I think is so important is to vaccinate low on the limb, so below the elbow, below the stifle. Um, the problem is we know that the recommendation is surgery and the recommendation is to use five centimeter margins. And if you think about that on a cat, it's, it's huge. And really the only way to achieve that with minimal morbidity to the cat, and I don't know, I say that in quotation marks because it still means a big surgery for them, but is low on a limb so we could achieve a limb amputation and potentially cure that patient. Um, when it's, when it's up higher on the limb over a shoulder, over a hip, we end up doing hemipalvectomies, body wall resections, thoracic wall resections. I mean, huge surgeries in these cats. And even with those big surgeries, we, we don't always achieve a cure. Um, and I, you know, I, I see these a lot. So I know that people say, well, they're not common. And I know they're not common. They just statistically, they are, they occur in one in a thousand to one in 10,000 cats. But if you only practice cancer surgery, you end up seeing them pretty frequently and, and it's a heartbreaking disease. So I'm hoping we can push for change, you know, and, and vaccine sites are really important. Um, how often people are vaccinating is important and the type of vaccines. Um, I, you know, Susan, you're the best person to talk about that, not me, but for me, it's all about the site and, um, you know, people following vaccine recommendations. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah. So because normally people, tend to vaccinate in between the shoulder blades. And, and uh, I've always thought about why that is. Probably it's the easiest spot. There is a lot of loose skin there, and you're kind of away from the head, so you're, you're not really, uh, I mean, you're probably a little bit safer there. But uh, And then this, these guidelines came out, and then they said periphery. And at, at first they were talking about the tail. And Susan, what do you think about tail vaccination? Well, that, that seemed to have sort of a little brief flurry of interest there for a while. There was one paper, very small paper, <clears throat> small number of cats um, uh, looking at um, injecting in the tail, you know, with a view, again, um, to the fact that it, it would be uh, possibly uh, a site that's, that's uh, maybe most amenable to surgery, you know, should you need to deal with a sarcoma that arises in that place. But, it, you know, there are problems, and, and so we, we looked at that. We played around with that a little bit in my practice, and the problem with vaccinating in tails is kind of twofold. Like, one is that there's not a lot of sub-Q space, and, and these vaccines are meant to go sub-Q, uh, and often the skin on the tail, especially towards the base of the tail, is quite thick, so it could be challenging, actually, to get the vaccine placed in, in you know, in, in the right location. Um, and some cats are really quite touchy about their tails, too. So I, it, it, I don't think this has really taken off as a popular vaccination site, and, and I think I, and I can understand why. Yeah, so from, from a surgical standpoint, it probably is the, the easiest place to take off if a tumor exists, but I completely agree with you. It is it's not very practical. Mm. Most of the time when you talk with cat sets, uh, they 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 laugh at you if you even bring it up. Uh, they say, okay, this is this is a very academic decision that they made, and uh, and and it's not working in practice. So, uh, but but Sarah, you were talking a little bit about uh, distal on the limb. Um, 
is is that an easier place to vaccinate them? So, I mean, I can talk about my own experience, and and I have not been in general practice for a long time, um, but I did do three years of practice, and um, you know, I think it just gets it comes down to what you're used to and what you get comfortable with. I found um, if I wrap the patient or use the I hate the term cat bag, but I guess it's the best term, and I could just pull a leg out, and they were pretty calm for that. You know, I think something that actually comes hand-in-hand with vaccine sites and thinking about that is gentle handling of feline patients. So, you know, a lot of people yeah. kind of grab them by the scruff and give them their vaccine, and it's, a, it's, it's they say, well, I can't do anything else with them because they're just terrible in the clinic. But, um, you know, it's all about how you handle them. I call it speaking cat. It's it's being calm. I think if you're calm with them and you use gentle handling techniques, you, you really can vaccinate them in these sites, and it doesn't have to be such a such a big deal. And again, I'm not I'm not a feline only practitioner, but I do handle cats a lot in my practice. And you know, there is a difference. You know, people who are more patient with them um, and sort of like work work with them rather than working against them. And I think some of the intrascapular vaccination and anything we do with these cats, like it comes from not working with the cat and just grabbing them and scruffing them and you know pinning them to the table. And I really think that's part of what. Also, we need to move away from that. And I think if you if you can kind of change your mindset for how you handle a feline patient, you, you really can handle them that way and vaccinate them lower on a limb. Um, I do understand the issues with the tail. And, you know, the other concern I have about the tail vaccine is that people will vaccinate too high up because that's not going to be helpful. So that's the problem with the limb vaccinations that I'm seeing, the sites that I'm seeing with cats with the sarcomas, is they are vaccinated over a limb, but they're so high up on a limb or they're actually the cat is in a crouched position, so it ends up being kind of more flank hip than really truly limb. It's really not helping us do a better job with our surgery. Um, so, you know, I, but I actually also should say I vaccinate my own cat in the tail. <laughs> so, um, yeah. and I think a lot of a lot of a lot of cancer surgeons do. Um, and you know, my cat is amazing. He's got a wonderful personality, and I can do a lot with him. So, I mean, I'm not saying that's for everybody, but. You know, if anyone is going to do that, you've got to go pretty low on the tail, but not so low that there's not sub space, and I had to shave his tail, and it didn't go back mm-hmm. for a long time. So I don't know. A lot of clients may not accept that also, but, you know, I think it's interesting to think about that. Um, and, again, I think it's something that if you did it every day, it's like, you know, it just might be, well, that's how we do it, and, and like, whether it's a limb or a tail or wherever you're doing that procedure, if that sort of just becomes how your clinic works and how you – how you handle those patients, I think it's possible, you know, and, and at least should be, we should be talking about it. I'm so glad you made the connection between cat handling skills and a less stressful approach and the vaccination site, because those two things, I agree with you, absolutely go together. To play devil's advocate a little bit, I totally understand why some vets have difficulty vaccinating cats low on the limb. It isn't as easy as intrascapular. Uh, it isn't as easy with every cat. Um, the lower you go on the limb, the less substitute space there is. Uh, people are, you know, are fearful of where they're sticking sticking that needle. So from the, the vet's point of view, just the technicalities of injecting in that site, yeah, they are a little bit more difficult. And certainly if your patient is less cooperative, it's also a challenge. So I do think we need to meet that challenge with that bigger uh, viewpoint that says, we should be handling cats more compassionately, you know, using the, the cat-friendly practice techniques, the fear-free techniques, lots of help out there now to guide us to have better interactions with cats. 
And, and maybe that's actually the bigger part of that conversation. And what can flow, one of the good things that can flow out of that is better cat handling, better skills um, for vaccination. So, but I totally understand why my son vets have problems with that and why vaccines end up on the flank, you know, too high. Um, because I, I would never be, um, one to say, oh, it's so easy to vaccinate low on the leg. Why isn't everybody doing it? Yeah, it is a little bit more technically challenging than it is um, in, uh, in the scruff of the neck. Uh, and I understand, too, why some of them have ended up on the body wall, you know, when the uh, vet probably wasn't <clears throat> aiming there. I do want to ask you about that, Sarah, because in Europe, um, a couple of the vaccine guidelines groups, uh, instead of recommending low on a leg, are actually recommending sub Q on the lateral thorax or the lateral abdomen. So we have a, a somewhat different viewpoint and different recommendations in North America than they do in Europe. And and I think it's also confusing to veterinarians because there isn't consistency in recommendations. So what do you think about that more European viewpoint that, that says forget about the leg, use the body wall? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting, and I think it comes from a bit of a cultural difference. So, you know, maybe amputation isn't as accepted um, some other places in the world, and so trying to come up with the same uh, answers to the same question and, and try to solve the same problem. Um, I think, I, I don't know there's any real research on that. And one concern I have about, you know, doing that is that the subkey space in a cat is so, there's so much space there. I don't know that you could be confident that you it landed exactly where you wanted. And I think that's one problem we're seeing with some of these uh, vaccine site sarcomas is that, even if the intention was to go over a hip, it's kind of moved around because there's just a lot of subtle space. And so, you know, I guess I prefer the limb because I think you can direct it downwards. You can, you know, point your needle downwards and, and you know, go distal, but hopefully it's pushing further down and gravity is going to help you. So, I, you know, I, I don't – I'm not saying it's wrong. I think that's the concern I have with it. I think, you know, the thinking is we can get five centimeters. We can do a body wall resection. That's still a body wall resection. I mean, you're still going to have to reconstruct that with mesh or with um, a sartorius muscle flap. Uh, we just published a paper on using a sartorius muscle flap for reconstruction of the body wall in dogs and cats. Um, so you're still, it's still a pretty big surgery. Uh, but I guess either way, whether, <laughs> either way you could argue mm. that, you know, an amputation is not a small yep. surgery. So um, I, I think it's just a different approach to the same problem of trying to, you know, be able to cure these cats. And I think that's, that's great. I'd love to see, you know, if, if the European surgeons or the European veterinarians are going to start promoting that. I'd love to see, you know, in five or ten years how that goes for, you know, what, what the mm. success rate is. Well, one, one correction I would like to give there is that I think WCPA gave the advice to do it not on the thoracic wall because then you have to do a thoracic wall resection, which is quite a big uh, big uh, surgery too, but really use the abdominal wall uh, the mm. lateral ventral part of the abdominal wall because there the resection is probably much easier. Uh, but I agree with Sarah, right. you know, the subtube space is so so uh, loose there that you don't know where that vaccine is going. So um, for you both, the question too is, so now everybody starts worrying about vaccination in cats. Should we vaccinate cats? Uh, how often should we vaccinate them? And then the other question is, of course, that if we vaccinate the cats, what do we have to look for, um, and when should we do something? So that that is a really important part of the conversation because certainly back in the in the mid to late 90s, 
when we really became aware of the connection between injections and, of course, the most common injections cats get or vaccines and this type of tumor, there was, a, there was some backlash, and, and it led to changing the, uh, the, the duration, the interval between vaccines and cats. So now we much more commonly see extended duration, extended duration licensed products and, 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 uh, and protocols. Um, so, uh, but I think, so having lived through all of this, <laughs> I, I think I'd point out a couple of key things. And one is that we have to be really careful because it's not just vaccines. Sarah did mention, of course, there are, you know, multiple documented cases where it's not just vaccines. So I think there may be some cats who are just so prone to developing these tumors. And they may, they may have a, a, a genetic susceptibility, for example, um, that, that even uh, injections that cause minimal, minimal inflammation, um, other, other products, other drugs, for example, could trigger uh, a sarcoma at that site. And, and when we talk about vaccines, as Sarah mentioned, adjuvanted types of vaccines do rely on some degree of inflammatory response. You know, that, and that's, that's not a bad thing. Uh, if you are a predisposed cat, that, that, and a, that of course could be a bad thing. But I also want to point out that we certainly have seen, again, these tumors form at sites where, where non-adjuvanted vaccines have been used. So it's not like there is a, a really clear cut, um, uh, you can prevent it by avoiding, you know, vaccine X or drug X. So, you know, there, there are some patients that are just going to be so susceptible. I would like to be able to tell who is that susceptible. I kind of like to flip it on its head and say, would it be cool if there was some, you know, readily available test that you could administer in kittenhood that would say to you, yeah, this patient, you know, is, is likely to, to develop a, a tumor at the injection site. So that's my pie in the sky. I'm thinking about it. So, so yeah. that, so that's one point that we, we do see them from other, other things that's not just adjuvanted vaccines, although I, I agree that it's probably more likely to be an adjuvanted than a non-adjuvanted vaccine. Just to give some numbers, they estimate that the incidence of these kind of tumors is one to four in every 10,000 vaccinated cats. That is data mm. from the U.S. And then there was another study from the U.K. Uh, where it was 0.3 uh, or in 10,000 vaccinations. So obviously it's not not that common in cats. And I think the important part is that we should not not vaccinate our cats just because that this is happening. In the UK, they don't vaccinate for rabies, so that would be why there's probably there's less yeah. incidence in the UK. Yeah. Um, exactly. You know, we have to vaccinate. You know, in North America, we have to vaccinate cats for rabies. I mean, that's. That's not negotiable. I actually lived in the South for a while where people didn't, weren't as good about vaccinating and pet animals were getting rabies. So, I mean, we, that has to happen. I think, you know, we need to look at frequency. We need to look at, you know, is, are the non-entrepreneurs better or not? I, I agree. It's not, it's not the complete answer. Um, and I, you know, I, I do think that other things can cause, other injections that cause inflammation can cause it. But I guess where I feel like it's important or, you know, what I would like to educate veterinarians about is that the biggest impact we can make is on the vaccines. Like that's what we have mm-hmm. the most control over. We can control where we inject it, how often we inject it, what type we use. And so anything we can do to make it better, I think we will help make an impact on this disease. I don't think we'll make it zero, but I think we need to talk about it because we need to figure out how to make it zero. And um, my worry is talking to some vaccine companies 
is that they say, oh, well, it could be anything, and they won't do anything. And I said, well, yeah, it could be anything, but it really looks like these are these are vaccine sites. And so that's what we can do the most about. The really predisposed cat who's going to get it no matter what, we probably can't prevent it in that cat. But I think it's a spectrum, and I think we can help, you know, a lot of patients if we start talking about what we should be vaccinating for. I mean, I have seen on cases that have been referred to me on the you – know, when I get the whole record for the patient, like – big, bold letters saying, feeling leukemia kills cats and you have to vaccinate every year. And I just, I don't think that's appropriate. You know, I think we need to stop doing that and, and uh, you know, think about what cat does need to be vaccinated for feline leukemia and what, you know, how often should we be vaccinating for rabies? Because those seem to be the big culprits, the adjuvanted rabies and leukemia vaccine. And then the other thing which Yola brought up is what do we do when we see one of these? And I think yeah. the, one, the one thing that happened when I was, vaccinating in a really odd place like so it was the 90s so I'm vaccinating low on a limb and it would start a conversation with a client because they would say why why are you doing that because they've never seen a vet do that before and I would explain like well there's a one in a thousand to one in ten thousand chance that your cat will develop a sarcoma at this site and I want to make sure you know that it's low enough that we can do something about it and that gives you an opportunity to educate the client what to do if they find a lump there so what could be kind of a conversation no one wants to have is something that you can sort of casually talk to them about so that you know they'll come back if there's a mass there. Um, and then something else that I think is really important, because we always talk about aspirating any lump, um, and that is always the right thing to do, but it's actually not in this case. Uh, we, need to, we need to actually do a biopsy. An aspirate will lead you astray with an injection site sarcoma, and it'll just be this bland kind of inflammatory lesion, and you may not get an answer. So you have to do an incisional biopsy, not remove it, but actually take a small piece of it, don't disrupt the tumor, and get an answer before we treat. So I think those are part, those are all part of the conversation that I want to be having is, like, you know, we can control a little bit where these are happening, and then we can control what we do about them when we do diagnose them. And yeah, vets so do need to have good medical records, right, that they need to document the site of each vaccination. So, you know, you're, you're, you're right, we're trained to aspirate, of course, masses, but if your medical record backs you up in, in confirming that that actually was a vaccine injection site or any injection site for that matter, then we're going to take a different approach to it. And, and just, just to be, be clear, you know, we've been talking about vaccinating in areas other than the intrascapular area. In my practice, we, we avoid giving any injection in the intrascapular area. So we've moved out of that area for, you know, anything that we inject into cats, actually. Just a really important point about the records, because, I, I, you know, I, I, always, I see these at the tail end. I don't see them at, the, you know, at the beginning or even the workup. I see them kind of at the, at the end when they have a tumor and they're coming for surgery. Um, and sometimes there's no good records because the cat has moved around or the people haven't had the cat very long. But sometimes there's just not good vaccine records. And, you know, I think that's something else that we need to talk about and we need to, as a profession, make sure that we're doing that. It's really critical. Um, some people don't report this as an adverse event. And I, like, what is more of an adverse event than this? I mean, this is cancer that can mm-hmm. kill this cat. And so it's, <laughs> you need to report this and you need to have the lot number and all the information for the vaccine company. They really don't want this to happen. This is very bad for them. So they actually are pretty committed to trying to figure this out. But if you can't provide them with what, even what vaccine it was, how can they help us and how can we work together? So, I mean, it's a medical record. It's not sexy, but you have to record it all. You know, the site and all the information that's on the, the label of the vaccine has to be recorded. And if something happens at that site, 
you need to go back to the vaccine company and report it to them. And then something else which some veterinarians don't know um, is some of these vaccine companies will actually assist the family paying for some of the, the treatment or at least yeah. the diagnostics, which is thousands of dollars. Uh, and I've had vaccine companies help with that. And so if, if nothing else, that's a reason to make sure it's documented. Yeah. But there's actually, there's actually other good reasons to do that. So um, that's something that I'm not seeing in the records that I'm getting, I'm not seeing that happening consistently. So, so this is all really interesting news. We're now uh, at uh, 28 minutes, so uh, this is the first part of this two series about uh, this. I would like to thank uh, Sarah uh, for all her input, uh, and uh, of course Susan for being here. And then we'll see everybody once again in our next podcast, where we will pick up where we left and talk about the three two one rule because that is also really important. Mm. So, uh, so thank you, Sarah, for uh, for your input, and thank you, Susan. Thank, thank Sarah. you. <laughs> this episode is made possible by the generous sponsoring of the Take the Pledge Against True Fight in Pets Facebook page. Did you know that there are three easy steps to treat stones in cats? After you see a cat with urinary signs, you take a radiograph. If there is a stone present, use the Minnesota Urolog app to find out what the most likely stone type is and treat the animal for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stones get smaller. If so, keep on feeding the diet. Take the pledge to not remove screwbite stones by surgery anymore. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat Clinical Medicine and Management and August Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. You can follow her on social media with the handle at CatVetSusan. Dr. Yola Kirpenstein is a diplomat of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently for Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX.